This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 24th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. There are several paths forward for the American economy. One path readily advanced by a movement on the right looks a lot like a loser's playbook. Protect industries and workers with the heavy hand of government and otherwise move toward more state interventions into economic affairs. Samuel Gregg is author of the new book, The Next American Economy. We spoke last week. How do you evaluate the so-called conservative nationalists, at least with respect to trade policy and sort of a more general economic policy? It's very clear to my mind that economic nationalists of today are echoing the same arguments that economic nationalists have made forever. So they're clearly skeptical of the benefits of trade. Uh, They're inclined to use things like industrial policy to try and generate particular outcomes in different sectors of the economy, often with a view to trying to shape the economic circumstances in which particular segments of American society find themselves. Uh, The problem with these policies is the problems that these policies have always had, that protectionism leads to an inward-looking, increasingly uncompetitive economy that generates less growth, that tariffs and other means of protectionism invariably become captured by interest groups, by lobbyists, and that when it comes to things like industrial policy, industrial policy has a terrible record of success. Uh, One need only look at examples like Japan, which tried this on a relatively systematic way for several decades, and it contributed to the 20 years of stagnation that the Japanese economy entered into in the early 1990s, not to mention the way in which industrial policy, like protectionism and other such policies, uh, get very quickly captured by different interest groups and don't generate, and these policies don't generate, for the most part, the type of outcomes that they promise. So economically speaking, the the people on the right who are embracing these ideas about the economy, I think, have a very difficult time explaining uh, how their way of doing tariffs and protectionism and industrial policy is going to differ from or at least produce different outcomes from the failed outcomes of all such policies in the past. So there's a basic empirical problem that I think they're confronting. As a political matter, how closely tied are the economic nationalists of the right to Donald Trump? That is, is it, is it one in the same? Is there just a lot of overlap? There are a lot of people who are calling for Trumpism without Trump. And um, this election, I suspect you would say, would give them pause about whether or not that's the correct set of policies to be advocating? My sense is that uh, some of the people who fall into the category you're describing, uh, some of them, I think, viewed uh, Donald Trump as a means by which they would attain positions of power that would enable them to embark upon some of these economic nationalist policies. Now, Uh, Whether Donald Trump ends up getting the Republican nomination, whether he ends up running against uh, whoever the Democrat is and leaving aside the entire question of whether he would actually win, that's all crystal ball gazing. But 
it seems to me that those on the right who are in favor of this particular type of economic agenda, of economic nationalism, I'm not sure they're tied to the person of Donald Trump or the Trumpian populism per se. What they are tied to is a vision of using the state to try and engineer particular outcomes in the American economy, meaning that if they are able to find a flag bearer who promises or at least purports to be articulating and trying to implement policies along an economic nationalist line, they will go for that person. I'm not sure they're tied to the person of Trump in particular, what they are tied to. And it's very clear if you read their writings, it's not so much about Trump or Trumpian populism. It's an economic nationalist agenda. And they're less concerned about who the flag bearer is than the, that the agenda gets implemented. There has been some polling, uh, and, and I don't mean to make this too political, but there has been some polling that on issues like free trade, immigration, um, and other sort of market interventions, that Democrats are more freedom-oriented than they have been in a long time. And whether or not that's just a reaction to uh, economic nationalism, especially the personality of, of Donald Trump, it was at least promising during those years to have uh, Democrats broadly on the side of free trade and a more, a more rational open immigration policy. Yes, I've noticed some of the same polling as well. And I suppose the question one has to ask is whether this is because uh, people on the center-left actually believe these things, whether they think free trade and uh, a more rational approach to immigration is better, or whether it's actually Trump is for that, so therefore I'm, Trump is for economic nationalism, so therefore, and Trump is an immigration skeptic, so therefore I am by definition against those sorts of things. I suppose we won't really know the answer to that until the person of Donald Trump disappears from the political stage, right? So if we see in the future someone on the, the right from the, the GOP articulating um, the position of at least the formal position towards free trade that was, for example, articulated by Ronald Reagan George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, et cetera, which was a much more favorable view of free trade. If someone from the right starts articulating those ideas, I'll be interested to see whether uh, the, the policies of uh, the Democrats on these issues shift. That's what I think is going to be interesting. So, I mean, I'd like to think that there was some in-principle commitment to these things that went beyond the politics of opposition of who I happen to be against at a particular point in time. Uh, I'd like to think that was the case. I'm, I, I'll confess to being slightly skeptical as to whether that in-principle commitment will remain, depending on whoever the Republicans come up with and the economic policies enunciated by that candidate in 2024. It has been, and uh, maybe this is true of you, I don't know, you tell me, that it was at least a little bit alarming how quickly the Republican Party broadly fell in line with a lot of 
the uh, economic nationalism agenda. Uh, that there there has always been concern about uh, foreign adversaries like China uh, as an ascendant economy, and I, I understand that. And under the guise of national security, a lot of uh, protectionism has been put in place. Whether or not a lot of that was legitimate or not is maybe another question. But does it surprise you how what appeared to be just a decade or two ago were deeply held principles, that is to say, if you're not for this, you're not really a Republican, uh, were essentially just cast aside? On one level, I was surprised at the rapidity of the shift of large segments of the right away from a broad commitment to economic liberty and to free trade in particular. Uh, so in one, one sense, I was surprised, although obviously the emergence of China and some of the ways in which China behaves in the international sphere, including when it comes to economic issues, whether it's things like engaging in industrial espionage or intellectual property theft. I mean, so in one sense, I was surprised that the shift happened so quickly, though, when you take into account the great rivalry, great power rivalry with China, I guess that's more, it's more uh, explicable. But at the same time, I think it's worth us keeping in mind that political parties in America have shifted their positions towards particularly trade questions over long periods of time. So let's remember that the Republican Party was for many decades in the 19th century, particularly after the Civil War, it was the, par the party of protectionism. It was the party of protectionism and Democrats, for the most part, tended to have a more free trade orientation. So tariffs has been a point of contention that has split the country, but also split the two main political parties, both between each other, but also internally as well. So in that sense, when you take this longer historical perspective, I think you can say that, well, American political parties have shifted their positions on trade issues several times since the founding of the republic. So in that sense, the more recent uh, abandonment of large parts by large parts of the Republican Party of a commitment to free, free trade seems less odd than it might otherwise seem. What's going to be interesting going forward is how both parties deal with this question of trade in light of the relationship or the non-relationship or whatever you want to call it. Uh, with the People's Republic of China. It has been at least interesting to me because, you know, Republicans have been, I think, largely skeptical of government intervention. And they have in part of their campaign in 22 and 2020 and various state level races, uh, a, an enormous skepticism of government direction of almost anything. And yet industrial policy seems to be among their top, uh, many Republicans' top priorities. And it's just, uh, I haven't really heard anyone really thread that needle, uh, at least to my satisfaction, of saying, oh, but this in this, in this case, what we need is a top-down approach. 
Yes, it's very clear that industrial policy, by which we're really talking about specific interventions by the government into specific sectors of the economy to try and generate outcomes that would otherwise be delivered by that would the outcomes that are different to those that would be otherwise generated by markets. There's no question that large numbers of uh, people on the right, ha and particularly right-leaning intellectuals, have shifted in this direction. So why has this occurred? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that uh, many people on the right are animated by what they see as particular social dysfunctionalities in particular parts of American society and in particular parts of the United States, by which I'm really talking about uh, the, what is often called the Rust Belt states, those, those parts of the country that are perceived to have gotten the negative end of free trade deals, etc. And also the obvious social dysfunctionalities that that are very apparent in large parts of America, whether it's coming things like men dropping out of the workforce or extensive use of opioids and all these sorts of things. And what I find interesting about this is that the notion, first of all, they, they're arguing that economics and economic policy and, and markets in particular have somehow contributed to these economic and social outcomes, and that using state intervention into the economy is therefore the way that you deal with these sorts of things. And, and what I find curious about this is that this is a rather materialistic conception of some of the causes of, the, of these problems. It's not clear to me that uh, in high levels of drug use among significant segments of the male population have very much to do with uh, trade policy or whether you have tariffs or not. Uh, and in fact, we know that many of these, these social trends were, have been well in place in parts of America uh, uh, long before many of these, these trade policies and in economic policies that are associated with the market assumed some type of preeminence on the right. So I, I think there's a cause-effect issue here that I think they've got severely mixed up on uh, a number of levels. And the last thing I'll say about this is that, and I'm sure you've heard this argument before, that the argument is, well, we've spent so much time trying to take down or minimize the size of the administrative state. We seem to have failed to do so after 40 years of trying to do this. So why shouldn't we simply accept that the administrative state is there to stay, the regulatory state is there to stay? Why shouldn't we just accept that and then take the levers of power and use them ourselves? Now, I happen to think that's a very mistaken approach for all sorts of reasons that I probably don't need to explain to your listeners, but I think it explains why some people on the right have gravitated in this direction. Whereas I would, you know, hearing that argument, I would say that uh, we are quite possibly on the cusp of a, uh, if not radical, at least systematic dismantling of a good deal of the administrative state. We haven't seen it yet, but I, I feel like it is closer than ever. Yes. And I think a lot of the dis malfunctioning of the administrative state has a great deal to do with that. And also the fact that 
one of the things about markets, I think, is it's taking many of the things that the administrative state would like to try and control. It's sort of taking it out of its purview, and it's making it harder and harder for government officials to get involved in a number of these things. But I do think that the perennial temptation of power is something that everyone, including a good number of people on the right, are persistently exposed to. And we're all of us at different points, I think we can often fall into the trap of thinking, if only we were in power, we would make the system work better than our opponents. Now, I have to think that that's a mistaken argument. I think, and I also think that um, the notion that conservatives are going to take over these institutions and somehow staff them with like-minded people is sort of ludicrous in many respects. And uh, I don't think conservatives should get into the business of trying to take over the administrative state, not least because I think that leads them to start thinking and acting like a group of people that American conservatives have traditionally been very opposed to, and that is progressives. And the administrative state is very much the project of progressives, going right back to people like Woodrow Wilson and even further back into the very late 18, 19th century. Now, it seems to me that if you're a conservative, you should be concerned that you're adopting the means of of shaping the economy and society more generally that was favored by progressives. Because I think when you embrace progressive means, I think in the end you start thinking like a progressive as well. In other words, you start gravitating towards what conservatives would regard as the ends that progressives have traditionally pursued. I have seen uh, just smatterings of this on, on social media among people that I follow, uh, which is the idea that what uh, somebody who was a self-described conservative free market, uh, relatively minimal state Republican suddenly, or it seemed suddenly, were describing themselves as, you know, I'm really more of an FDR Democrat. Yes. Yes. I, I, I've noticed the same people doing this as well. And what I find puzzling about this is, first of all, the rap rapidity of the shift that's happened very, very quickly, comparatively speaking. The, but what is also interesting is when you think of something like FDR's program, there's a fair amount of empirical evidence, and not just necessarily produced by people who would regard them who would be considered sort of conservative historians or right-leaning or classical liberal historians, but even some who consider themselves more left-leaning, that the New Deal failed. The New Deal failed in terms of the objectives that it was purported to type to try and realize. And if that is the case, it would seem to me that people who are moving in that position have an intellectual problem that they've got to try and resolve, which is you're embracing an ideal of, and a set of policies that did not deliver the outcomes that, it's promised, that it promised. And it's not just conservative and classical liberal historians who will say this, it's plenty of progressive historians will say, yes, well, it was a nice try, but it ended up not achieving the ends of lowering employment and restarting the economy. So there's, again, a serious problem here between, let's call it in this case, particular ideological commitments and 
the actual results that were delivered by the programs that were underlined and driven by these very same ideological commitments. What do you see as the way back? Uh, you know, to, to in the to the extent that both parties have had sort of uh, an illiberal agenda within their parties, however popular it might have been at any given time, uh, the way back seems to be reinvigorating a coalition that basically supports uh, the freedom of Americans to engage in the kinds of commerce and trade and relationships that they would like to engage in. Uh, but I don't see a super politically palatable uh, path back to that. Uh, as disappointing as as Donald Trump might have been on trade or immigration, um, Joe Biden has not you know, it, it's not like he uh, came into office and said, I'm going to undo all of these uh, negative trade policies. Uh, I'm going to undo all of these uh, new immigration restrictions. It, it you know, it, it, it makes me yearn for the days of people like, you know, Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yes, I, I, I've often said that to people, what I wouldn't give for <laughs> a Clintonite approach to economic policy. I mean, I never thought I'd say something like that compared to the reality of what we're experiencing today. No, I mean, I, I think this is a genuine problem because President Biden's trade policies, as far as I can tell, are no different in substance from those of uh, Donald Trump. In fact, I think it's a sort of softer, softer, less rhetorically harsh version of protectionism that the Trump, uh, the Biden administration has adopted. It's really a continuation of many of those trade policies. So when it comes to the politics of this, of reconstructing a, a, a political agenda behind this, I think part of the answer, and it's not the full answer, but part of the answer, I think, has to be asking questions about what is the significance of liberty for America? What is the significance of things like free trade, uh, a generally positive view of commerce to the American experiment in ordered liberty? In the last chapter of my book, I spent a lot of time talking about this, and I basically argue that I think if we're going to rehabilitate many of these ideas, these economic ideas about liberty, about trade, about how we think about commerce, I think it's very important that we tie it back to the ideals expressed at the American founding, because I think what you find there is a vision of America as a commercial republic, as a commercial republic. And that's different from the late Roman Republic, which was a very militaristic exercise. Instead, it's a republic in which commerce is seen as the way in which things are done in the way in which people relate to each other. But also the republic side is not just republican forms of government. It's an appeal to things like republican virtue, to the types of virtues that I think a free society and a, certainly a free economy needs if it's going to function over the long term. And also because I think these virtues are good in themselves. So, And that's important when it comes to giving the ideas of free trade and free markets legitimacy legitimacy in the sense that we recognize these things as being distinctly American and in and valid and proper and right in an American context. That's got to be, it's not the full political answer. That won't give you political coalitions or those sorts of things. But I think it's got to be part of the, let's call it the, the, the political philosophical response 
to reconstructing the case for markets, both domestically and internationally in America, because going back to the 1980s is not part of the solution. We're living in the 2020s. We're living in a different set of circumstances. And I do think that rehabilitating this idea of America as a commercial republic is at least part of the way in which we can rehabilitate the case for free trade and economic liberty more generally in the United States today. Samuel Gregg is author of the new book, The Next American Economy. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 